0: Well, we're in a series called Sola. Sola is the Latin word for only, and the word has been used by historians and theologians to summarize the five core beliefs of the Reformers. We started two weeks ago with sola scriptura, which is scripture alone, and last week we talked about Sola Christus, which is Christ alone, and this week we're going to tackle two at once, sola gratia and sola fide, or grace alone and faith alone, because the two are linked in some important ways. Now, these are churchy words, so um, you might ask, why are these two concepts so important? And to answer that, I want to tell you a story. Now, this story is the kind of story that I would give if I were at a dinner party and someone said, what's your most embarrassing moment? Now, I'll tell you, this is not number one on the list, but it's certainly in the top five. And to give you a little background, Kathy and I moved to Switzerland about a year after we were married. We lived there for three years, and when we moved back, my Minnesota driver's license had expired. I intended to go to the DMV pretty soon to get a new driver's license, but one thing got in the way and another thing got in the way, and it was two years later before I did anything about it. And I finally decided I needed to get that taken care of. So I got a copy of the little book that you have to study in order to take the exam. And I took the exam, 30 questions, and I aced it. 30 right answers, pretty confident. Um, but I also found out that because my license had expired, not just come to the end of its term, I had to take the driving test. No problem, I've been driving for a long time, I thought, so I got in line and waited for the next available examiner. Now, I should have known things weren't going to go well when he asked to see my license, and I handed him my Swiss driver's license. And he said, how long have you been back? I said, well, two years. He said, so you've been driving illegally this entire time. And I realized he wasn't informing me, he was scolding me, and I thought, oh, well, I'm a pretty good driver, we'll get this thing over with, and I'll come home, go home with my driver's license. So he instructed me to take a ride out of the parking lot, go a couple of blocks, take another right. Um, then uh, he instructed me to park on a hill, uh, then to go around the block, and then eventually we got to the entrance ramp to the freeway. Um, we'd been gone about 30 minutes when he had me move back to the, go back to the DMV and where we parked in the parking lot. Now, he had said very little other than give me instructions on where to turn and what to do. So I assumed that meant I was doing really well. And we got into the parking lot, we pulled up, he said nothing while he continued to fill out the form. And he wrote something at the top, ripped it off and handed it to me, and it said, failed. Now, I was shocked, and then he began to list all of the violations that I had committed along that uh, particular driving test. Every rolled stop sign, I parked incorrectly on the hill, I changed lanes improperly, and so on. And then he said to me, you know, of course, you can't drive home. You'll need to call your wife to come and pick you up. So I went back into the waiting area of the testing center, tail between my legs, and I sat down, and I waited. waited for him to go back out with another uh, student, and um, I drove home. Two days later, I came back, and this time I sat in the parking lot, I parked my car, actually, I backed it in so I could see the door, and I waited till I saw him go out with another student, and this time I went back in, got in line, got a different instructor, and I passed the exam. So what did I learn? Well, I learned that the standards are tough, and I learned I had a lot of bad habits. Now, what was true about me and driving is also true about us, although in an area that's a lot more significant. So I want you just to think for a moment, if someone asked you, how good a person are you, what would you say? And I think most of us would say, pretty good. You know, I'm not perfect, but weighing the good and the bad, I think the good outweighs the bad, right? But the problem is, is that we're not quite as good as we think we are. You see, most of us are good at making excuses when we mess up. There are times when we're just a little bit cruel, or maybe a lot of bit. There are times when we let greed take over so that we can get something that might rightly belong to someone else, or the times when maybe we're not faithful in a relationship or give in to a temptation to do something that we know in our hearts isn't right. Sometimes these things even become compulsions, even addictions, and we find we're powerless to break whatever pattern is in our life. Unfortunately, we're remarkably good at stuffing these thoughts, though. We keep ourselves busy or distracted, or think and look around at others who are much worse than us and take comfort in the notion that we're better than average on the goodness scale. We're not serial killers or even semi-serial serious killers, um, so we're pretty good. Or are we? The problem is that we're not quite as good as we think we are. And all the denial in the world won't change the reality that we're messed up. We're haunted perhaps by something we've done, we've repressed it, but late at night sometimes it comes rushing back. And we wish we could roll back the videotape or whatever analogy works today and redo even just a few events in our lives, but we can't. So that question, how good a person are you, the one with the answer not as good as you think you are, must be followed up by another question, and that is, how good is good enough? That answer requires a little honesty, actually a lot of honesty. That's because the typical response is to start weighing the good and the bad. And the idea is that there's some kind of cosmic ledger, that if you're basically a good person, you'll go to heaven. And so the goal is to do at least enough to cancel out the bad and maybe just a little bit more. But we don't know what the threshold is. Is it 5149 or a supermajority of 6040 or higher? The assumption, though, is that at some level of goodness, we all got in. And so the way that most religions operate is let the good outweigh the bad and you'll be fine. But not Christian faith. Christianity is both more and less demanding at the same time. It's more demanding for the simple reason that it says that there aren't any good people. To clarify, that doesn't mean that we're all worthless and unlovable. Genesis tells us that we are created in the image and likeness of God with great dignity. The writers of the Bible tell us we're deeply loved and capable of great good. Even people who don't acknowledge God do often naturally do the right thing, sometimes in ways that embarrass those of us who call ourselves Christians because they live better lives than we do. But the truth is is that even if we know right from wrong, we frequently choose wrong. Now, we f- may feel good by comparison because we're more on the Mother Teresa end of the scale than the Hitler. Or we avoid the big things, murder, adultery, tax evasion. But the comparison that um, assures us at least we think, that God grades on a curve. And focusing on the big things can overlook the little and not so little things that matter just as much, things like greed and gossip and slander and jealousy and arrogance and so on. So if we're honest, we'll admit that, yeah, we do some good things, but we also fail more than we care to admit. We may maintain a veneer of respectability, but inside we're judgmental, greedy, and full of lust. We are, as Paul said to the Romans in chapter 1, without excuse, and then in chapter 3 when he said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Years ago, I heard the story of a strong-wheeled four-year-old who loved to ride her tricycle. Her parents had told her that she needed to stay within a certain area, but she kept straying beyond. So one day, her mother got out in the front yard, and she looked at her daughter, and she said, if you ride outside of the area that we've told you you can ride, I will spank you. And her daughter looked her in the eye and said, well, you better spank me now because I got places to go. (laughs) And that's the way we are. Draw a line and we'll cross it. Tell us something's off limits and we'll find the loophole. And because of our sin and rebellion, our future isn't bright. We're told eventually we'll face God and have to account for our failures. And that's a downer, isn't it? So why is it even necessary to mention it? Why don't we just think happy thoughts and move on? Well, the reason is this because if we don't realize, if we don't come to terms with the bad news ourselves, we can't really hear the good news either. The essence of Christian faith is not a balance sheet. It isn't even karma. The truth is, is that nothing we can do can make up for the bad stuff. It can only be confessed. Which brings us to the first of the two big ideas that we're going to look at today, the two, first of the two big reform, reformation ideas. And the first one is sola gracia, or only grace. Now, most of us have heard the word grace, and we may even think we know what it means, yet it's a concept that's often misunderstood, and yet at the same time, all of us have a deep longing for grace in our lives. Philip Yancey wrote a whole book on grace, and he says that the world runs on what he calls ungrace. At school, at work, on the sports field, really everywhere, we're told that everything we have, we have to earn. Even frequent flyer programs remind us that if you want to sit in first class or board early, You have to earn it by spending lots of time on airplanes. Think of the things that we say to one another. The early bird gets the worm. There's no such thing as a free lunch. No pain, no gain. That's why the Christian understanding of grace is so radical. Now, when you read the word grace in the New Testament, it's usually the word charis um, in Greek, which means gift. And in those days, gifts were given to people who were worthy. You didn't give a gift to someone that you didn't respect. And in some places in the world today, if you receive a gift, you are obligated to give a gift back, for example, the country of Japan. But Christian grace, the sort of grace that the New Testament writers talk about, the idea that Jesus communicated in story after story during his time here on earth is different, very different. God's grace, we're told, is given without regard to the worth of the one who receives it. God doesn't give discriminately, he gives indiscriminately. Nothing about us will ever make us worthy of the grace that God gives us, the gift that God gives us in Jesus Christ. So the idea of grace, that God's love comes to us free of charge, goes against every human instinct that we have. Now, even though most of us aren't Hindu or Buddhist, we're more likely to imagine that things work like karma. If you do good, you'll get good. Do bad, you'll you'll get the same in reverse. But Christian grace is different. Only Christianity says that God's love is unconditional. Grace means that we don't get what we deserve, but actually get what we don't deserve. In other words, grace rewards the undeserving. Jesus once told a story about a wealthy man who owned a vineyard. He needed to get the grapes picked, so he hired some day laborers. He went out to the area where uh, folks hung out wanting work early in the morning, and he hired a a whole bunch of them at 6 in the morning, but he needed more. So mid-morning, he went out, perhaps at 9 o'clock, and he gathered more. At noon, still wanted more to get the grapes harvested, so he went and got more workers. Middle of the afternoon, he got more. And then at 5 o'clock, just an hour before the work was to knock off, he got a few more folks. He told them all what he would pay them, and at the end of the day, at 6 o'clock, when the work ended, he paid them all the coin, a denarius, that he uh, that he had promised them. And those who worked a little longer said, it's not fair, especially those who started at six in the morning. It's not fair because I'm getting the same as this guy who's only worked an hour. And they were right, at least if you calculated on an hourly wage. But the rich man didn't see it that way. What do you mean, he said, I'm not being unfair. I told you up front what I would pay you, and I paid it. Don't I have the right to pay what I want? Or are you just mad because I'm generous? This is a story about grace. What the rich man did doesn't make economic sense. In fact, the point isn't about counting at all. It's about a God who doesn't give us what we deserve, but instead what we don't deserve. That's because none of us have lived up to the expectations that God has for us, the standard of life that Jesus himself demonstrated when he was here on earth. In fact, if we were paid what we were deserved, we'd be screwed. So some assume that grace is just what God does. But understand that grace costs something. And that cost is what Jesus did for us on the cross. The truth is is that either we need to bear the cost or Jesus does. But the cost must be paid. But because of what Jesus has done for us, we no longer need to be consumed with trying to measure up. Grace means that there's nothing we can do to make God love us more, and grace means that there's nothing we have done or will do that will make him love us any less. And yet, we have this instinct that we need to do something before God can accept us. Perhaps the clearest explanation of grace in the Bible is found in something St. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2. Let me read verses 8 and 9, for he writes this, It's by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So grace, Paul says, is a gift. It can't be earned. It can only be received. We're saved by grace and only by grace, not what we do. It's God's choice to love, to forgive, and to embrace us. There's nothing we can do to earn it. We can't claim any credit. Now, the alternative to grace is to try to work really hard to try to earn God's love by our own effort. And that's what many do today, even if they don't believe in God. That's why some compete to be green enough, others to be woke enough, to succeed at whatever we've decided gives life meaning. But grace says stop it. You'll never be talented enough, smart enough, or good enough to earn whatever salvation means to you. So stop trying. There's nothing we can do to put our hearts and minds at rest except putting our trust in the grace that God offers We need to be saved from our guilt and shame and that nagging and sometimes raging sense that we have not done enough. But grace tells us that we can stop trying so hard, instead we can turn to God and put our faith in Him, and that's the second big idea that the reformers had. The idea that salvation comes only by faith. If grace is, as some define it, God's undeserved favor or the undeserved gift of an unobligated giver then there is simply no way to earn it or deserve it. There's nothing you can do to have it, the way, or the way you can have it, is by faith. Like any gift, you have to reach out and take it. And that's where faith comes in. We have to open our hands of faith and receive the gift of divine grace. In other words, to receive the grace that is offered us in Christ, we have to put our full trust in God. Now to be clear, that doesn't mean that you won't have questions and doubts. In fact, the effectiveness of our faith is not dependent upon how intense that faith might be, but in the trustworthiness of the one in whom we have put our faith. It's the sort of trust that you see a child um, put in a parent, say when they're swimming in a pool. You know, you can imagine a father standing in the water saying to his daughter, just jump in, I've got you. Or a mother saying the same to her son. Faith is more than just mere agreement with an abstract list of doctrines or religious statements. It's confidence in God, and that's why even when we have doubts, even when our faith feels weak, we can put our trust in God because of what we know of him and trust him with our lives and our eternal future. Faith doesn't eliminate doubt. That's why we need to be reminded that faith is not the same thing as certainty, but it is confidence in God despite our doubts. In fact, the Bible tells us that even the ability to exercise faith is a gift of God and comes by grace. We cooperate with God, but God supplies the ability. That's why the decision to become a Christian is called a relationship. To become a Christian is more than just an agreement with a set of religious ideas. It's a trust in a person, in God. Now, there's one thing we also need to clear up, because if you just listen to these two statements, only grace, only faith, you can sometimes get an unbalanced view of how all of this works. I made the point earlier that the Reformers emphasized there's nothing that that we can do to earn our salvation. In some ways, they were reacting against a common religious conviction at the time that our actions meant everything. What they wanted to communicate is that there's nothing that we could do to earn our salvation, that a relationship with God comes by grace through faith in what Christ has done for us, that while some spell religion D-O or do, Christians spell it done, D-O-N-E through what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. But it raises a question. Does this idea of grace, the idea that God will forgive us no matter what we've done, mean that we can go out and do whatever we want to do? That once we put our faith in Jesus, we can go out and live like the devil? Well, earlier I read Ephesians 2:8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But listen to the very next verse that Paul writes. He says in verse 10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. What Paul's saying in essence is that we receive God's grace by faith, faith that affects then what we do. So the real test of what you believe isn't what you say, it's not your ability to repeat a bunch of pious sounding words, it's what you do. That's why James in James 2.17 said faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action is dead. Now he's not saying that there's some kind of minimal threshold of good deeds that we have to have and we have to complete those in a certain period of time or we get kicked out of the eternal frequent flyer program. But it does mean that if you claim to believe something and your actions suggest otherwise, you should ask some hard questions. It may be that we don't actually believe what we thought we believed. It means that our actions are a more reliable indicator Of our than our words. Actions show what we truly believe. Now salvation doesn't depend on being good people. If it did, we're screwed. But it's also not simply a matter of having the right opinions. As those who've experienced God's undeserved grace out of gratitude, we must go and do likewise. That means volunteering to work with the dying, serving the poor, comforting the afflicted, caring for the immigrant, standing up against injustice. Loving those who look different from us and living righteous lives. Not because doing these things will get us into heaven, but because these are the sort of things that people who are going to heaven will do. We do these things motivated by God's extravagant gift, His extravagant love for us, His grace for us. The good we do is motivated by God's grace. While the good works don't save us, they show others that we are saved. Jesus once told a story about two men who went to the temple to pray. This is in Luke chapter 18. And the first one was a prominent Pharisee, a man who had devoted himself to righteous living. And he stood up where everyone could see him. <coughs> and, <coughs> and while he didn't say it explicitly, he was really saying as he got up, quiet everyone, stay where you are, you know, get where you can all hear. And then he began to pray. And pray he did an eloquent prayer about how he was not like others, and certainly not like the tax collector that he saw in the back of the room. Remember he said to God and for everyone else who was there, I fast twice a week, that's twice as much as he needed to, and I give a tenth of all that I earn. And while he didn't say it out loud, you can imagine him hoping that everyone saw himself as he wanted himself or believed himself to be, an upstanding man, a pillar of the community, a righteous example that others ought to emulate. God must, he thought, be honored to have me on his team. Such a high character and obedient guy. And then there was the tax collector, the man at a distance toward the back of the room, and he heard the Pharisee's prayer, but he didn't see him. Why? Because he was looking straight at the floor. He didn't feel worthy enough to do what a pious person would in those days do, and that is to look up to heaven. He didn't feel worthy to do that. Overwhelmed with guilt and shame, he began to pray and was surprised by the emotion that surged through him. God, he said in a voice that was louder than he had intended, have mercy on me, a sinner. It was all he could do to get just that out before the tears began to flow. A lifetime of regret poured out as he stood weeping, his face turned toward the floor. He must have wondered, maybe just a little bit, what the Pharisee thought of his unexpected outburst. But he knew he was a sinner, so he gave up any pretense of self-respect in the company of that holy man, and he poured out his heart before God. At this point, he didn't really care what anyone thought. He just wanted to be right with God. The contrast between the two men couldn't have been greater. One moral, one immoral. One proud and self-confident, the other insecure and ashamed. And yet, when Jesus gets to the end of the story, he surprised everyone with his conclusion, with his assessment, with his evaluation of what was going on. He said, I know what you're thinking. What a good guy, that Pharisee. And that tax collector, you know that corrupt, despicable man in the back of the room. Which one do you think went home right with God? Surprise, surprise. It was not the one that they thought. It's not the tax, it wasn't the Pharisee, it was the tax man, the one who humbled himself before God. Not the guy at the front of the room with his nose in the air. And those listening must have been shocked. But at least some would later come to understand that the Pharisee wasn't nearly as good as he thought he was, and the tax collector was more loved and accepted than he had ever dared to imagine. Lord, he said, I know I'm a horrible sinner. Please, please, please be be merciful to me. And he was. So how are we to live all of this out? Well, the way we do it is to stop trying and to receive God's grace by faith. Grace invites us to acknowledge our sin, to confess what we've done or sometimes what we've left undone, to stop comparing ourselves with others, hoping that we look good by comparison, but instead to admit that there is brokenness inside each one of us, brokenness that we cannot fix on our own, and then to ask for forgiveness, to put our faith in Jesus and what he did when he died for us on the cross in order to save us from our sin, our pride, and our selfishness. To acknowledge that he paid the debt that we could never pay. He died the death that we deserved, and now offers us a gift, the gift of grace. And we need to open our hearts to him and to receive by faith what he has offered. Throughout this series, you've seen the graphic of a rose. Um, Lee Colvin, our communication uh, director, developed this or created this as an updated symbol of a Reformation symbol, Luther's rose. It was a seal designed for Luther a dozen years after he posted the 95 Thesis on the Wittenberg church door. And Luther um, said this rose symbolized, first of all, God's grace. The cross at the center of the heart is there to remind us that faith in Christ is what saves us. The white rose around it, he said, symbolizes the joy and peace that comes for us in Christ. And the gold ring around the outside is the hope of eternal life yet to come for the believer. And that's the message of grace alone and faith alone. That alone gives us the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, um, these words grace and faith are words that are thrown around in churches all the time. But Father, help us this morning to understand what they mean and what they mean for us. That it is by grace that we can have a relationship with you. It is unmerited, it is undeserved, and yet it is offered freely. And all we need do is put our faith in you. Father, we may have doubts, our faith may feel weak, but we understand that we are putting faith in you, the one in whom we can find um, life, life eternal. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.